0: The scripture reading this morning is from Malachi 3, verses 6 through 12. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Could you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for your word that's living and active now. We pray that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we'd hear the truth through your spirit that you have for us this morning. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. For those of you who don't know me, I'm intern pastor Jim year. And if you're a visitor here, I want to say that first and foremost, that we rarely ever talk about money at Astoria Community Church. So I want to put that out there. Just know that I think in the last, um, I went and looked to see when was the last time ACC had a sermon about finances. And the best I could tell, that took place in around 2018 or 2019. So just know if you're a visitor here, this is not something that we normally talk about. It's probably something that we should talk about more because scripture has so much to say about how we handle our finances. So today we're going to be uh, turning to or looking at this chapter 3 in Malachi. But before we do that, I want to give just really a brief introduction to this book. My guess is that most of us have very little idea of who or where Malachi took place or when it took place, uh, when the prophet took place and when these writings took place. Now the prophet Malachi from Bible scholars and so forth will tell us lived around 450 B.C., 440 B.C. And he was the last of what is now called the minor prophets and so if you look in your Bible your English Bibles the last uh, book of your Old Testament in your English Bible you'll find Malachi his ministry the ministry of Malachi took place nearly 100 years after the decree of Cyrus, which was in 538 BC. That decree ended the Babylonian captivity, which allowed the Jews to return from captivity in Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, uh, to to rebuild their society. Now you can, of course, read about this in scripture. You can go to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, you can go to Ezra and Nehemiah and read about this the return of the exiles into the promised land. While, um, Nehemiah, if you notice it with Nehemiah, Nehemiah and Malachi have a lot of similarities. And so most Bible scholars think that they were written uh, during a similar period of time, um, that there was overlap between them, two, between the two of them. Now, the Jews had been back in Israel for almost 100 years, and things for them had not gone well. They were still a minor province of a greater empire and without a Davidic king. They were also in the midst of a famine, as we saw in this text this morning. And they were experiencing not just a famine, but moral decline within the priesthood and moral decline within the, the population as a whole. Now this book describes six disagreements between God and Israel. And this, these disputes cover a range of topics. Uh, they, if you go back and you look at each chapter, there's two, two, one or two in each chapter, and they, they're going to talk about the speech between God and his people regarding God's love, regarding worship by the priests, the nature of offerings, and marriage within the covenant community. In each of these areas, God was calling his people to repentance, to come back, to return to him that they had strayed from following his word. Now also you'll notice in the book, if you read through it, that each of these conflicts, a consistent pattern unfolds. God addresses the specific issue with the people. The people respond antagonistically to God, and God in turn provides a response to them. Now today we're going to look at the fifth dispute of Malachi that centers on this issue of tithes and offerings. Now a number of years ago I heard, and I didn't read this book, but there were two authors. In 1995 from Duke uh, Business School. They were professors at Duke University and they wrote a book titled The Abandoned Generation Rethinking Higher Education. They did a survey of students in the Duke Business School. Now understand this survey was really just a small part of the book so the book had much more to do with the bigger picture of uh, changing or modifying, uh, redoing how we think about and how we do higher education. Uh, But in this book these two authors interviewed a number of their students in this, in their business school and they asked them this question, what do you want out of life? What do you want to do when you leave the Business School? In a sense, what do you want to do when you grow up? One of the authors wrote this, with few exception, exceptions, their answers fell into three categories, money, power, and things. And not just any things, but very big things, including vacation houses, airplanes, yachts, and even fancy expensive cars. The students were mainly concerned with their careers and the growth of their retirement funds. Their future plans contained very little room for family, intellectual development, spiritual growth, or even social responsibility. Their immediate or their mandate to the faculty was in a sense show me the money or make me money-making machines. That was all that they were about. That's all that was really defining who they were and what they wanted to do. Everything else to them was inconsequential. Now this book came out 24 years before my son graduated from high school here in New York City in 2019. Now many of my, many of my son's friends gave very similar answers to these Duke business students as 18-year-olds, they weren't talking about power so much, but they were certainly talking about money and things. Now many were choosing their future careers solely based on money and the ability to buy things and to live comfortably. I would even go far enough to say that in my son's school, he was told by his teachers that he was foolish for going to a Christian school. And that for him not to go to a more prestigious school was a waste of money for him and a waste of his life. So just know that your kids who are in public schools here in New York City, maybe even Christian schools, this is the kind of pressure they're under, not just from their peers, but also from their teachers, who also have very strong views about living how we live in this world and what we do with our money. And for many of our kids in public school or even Christian school, what they're being told often is that you can't be successful unless you go into finance or into business or unless you're gonna make a lot of money. And if you're not willing to do that, then you're not gonna be successful in life. And that's what my son was hearing, particularly the last year, a year and a half in his school. Now church, you have to understand the same thing were being said at Jerusalem University in Malachi's day. It's my money, and I'll do with it what I want. But really, is it our money? You know, how does Scripture talk about money? The Bible has quite a bit to say about finances. The Scriptures consistently remind us, as we've heard throughout today, that God is the ultimate owner of everything. Everything we possess, everything we take pleasure in, comes from God, we receive from God. He's the owner of that. You know, Psalm 89 aptly expresses this truth. The heavens are yours, it says, and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. God, as the creator of all, holds dominion over everything we have and enjoy in this life. The Bible consistently instructs us to refrain from merely taking, from merely consuming and hoarding our possessions to fulfill every, desires, every desire of our hearts. Instead, Scripture encourages us to be stewards of what God has entrusted to us. Whether in 450 B.C. or 2024, people's attitudes towards money and possessions have not really changed all that much. Which is why I think we need to hear the teachings of Scripture regarding our possessions and regarding our finances. And as I said, as a church, this is not something we've done often. But it is something that we may need to do more often. Now, I want to go ahead and just jump into this text, verse 6 and, and, and forward. Notice here, first of all, that how God begins his message through Malachi. He tells the people that they are acting like their forefathers by turning away from him. And God responds to their disobedience with, return to me, he declares, and I will return to you. In spite of their sin and rebellion, he is still their God. And in loving compassion, God calls them back to himself. And basically what we have here is this return to me is God is calling them to repentance, to repent of their disobedience, to repent of their sinful ways, and to come back into fellowship with God through following and obeying his word. Now let's look at how the people responded to God's gracious invitation to return to him. They asked God, how do we return to you? Now in our English Bibles that sound that seems like a very reasonable response of the people, but in reality it was not. The response does not mean what should we do to return to you, but rather it means why would we need to come back. The people in a sense are oblivious to their situation and they're really confidently asserting we're doing fine, everything is alright here, even though we are told these same people are struggling with famine. They're struggling with their fields. Uh, they, they know that they're not able to survive and even live right now because there's so much going on within their land. Not just here with their fields, but also with the demise and since the, uh, uh, the people disobeying and moving further and further away from God. Israel had drifted really so far from God that they, they didn't even recognize that they had fallen away from him. They don't see the problem, nor the urgency in God's words. Instead of repenting, they in a sense throw this question back at God. So God responds to their indifference by pointing out the specific sin of the people. In verse 8, God asks, asks the people, Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? Now, this Hebrew word for rob has a number of nuances. And the imagery being conveyed isn't just robbery. It's rather that God is being mugged by the people, as if someone is assaulting or forcefully taking things from God. That's the idea of this this, uh, Greek, I'm sorry, this, this Hebrew word of robbery, that God is actually being mugged by his people, forcefully taking what belongs rightfully to him. The picture being painted here isn't really very pretty. The issue of robbing God, though, isn't just, isn't really the root problem of the people. The problem is not merely financial, it's really spiritual. This is a spiritual issue arising from a lack of understanding the character and the grace of God in their own lives. They had not grasped the unchanging nature of God. And you'll notice in in verse six, God starts with with that, that he is unchanging. He's always true to who he is. He does not change. We may change, and that's the point here. The people have changed. They are acting now like their forefathers. But God does not change. And that these people, he reminds them, that entered into a covenant with God, that, that they'd entered into this covenant with God all the way back to the time of Moses. right? They'd entered this covenant that God would be their God and, he, and they would be his people. Despite their stiff-necked and rebellious nature, God had remained faithful, loving them even when they strayed. Yet, tragically, they treated God with contempt, at least contempt in their actions and contempt in their heart towards how they related to God around these tithes and offerings. The specific sin addressed here is robbing God, particularly in tithes and offerings as mentioned at the end of verse eight. Under the law, God had instructed his people to offer a tenth of all that had been they had been blessed with. Now, when we refer to the tithe, we typically associate it with the act of giving 10% back to God. But in the Old Testament, it's a little more complicated than that. In the law of God, you will find three different tithes, which is why you will note in verse 8, it doesn't say tithe, it says tithes with an S. It's a plural, because in the Old Testament, there wasn't just one tithe, there were at least three different tithes. The the, the one tithe that we probably know the most about or at least think of when we think about a tithe is this first one, which was to support the ministry of the Levites and the priests. Now, if you, you may remember, the Levites were the only tribe of Israel who didn't receive land when the tribes returned from the Exodus into the promised land. So the priests, the Levites, they don't receive a portion of the land. Instead, they are to be supported by the other 11 tribes, and the other 12 tribes are to support them in their functioning at at the temple. They're there to provide the resources that the Levites and the priests need to do their job. Now, Paul also seems to reference this tithe when he reminds us in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says this, Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Paul here is showing the continuity of the principle of tithing in the Old Testament now worked out in the New Testament. And the principle of this tithe, it's not that we're commanded to tithe, but the principle carries over into the New Testament to support both the ministers and the work of the church as that church, as the church, as the ministers proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Now there are also at least two other tithes mentioned in the Bible, in the Torah. One was to support widows, orphans, and the poor. There was a whole tithe just dedicated to support the poor, the sojourner, uh, the widow, the orphan, in Israel. Another was around the three, three big feasts that God's people were called to participate in yearly. So if you take all three of these required tithes, Israel was being asked to tithe somewhere between twenty to thirty percent of all their resources. That was what the Old Testament required in their tithes. We do not think that's what we're asking you. Just one thing, I won't scare anybody here, all right? But that was what the Old Testament required of the people of God to tithe somewhere between twenty to thirty percent. And the basis for that came out of the knowledge that God owns all our resources. He owns everything. And we give back to Him out of gratitude, out of thanksgiving for how God has blessed us. Church, the people had, the people at Malachi's time, had withheld what belonged to God. And as a result, Malachi tells us that God's people are reaping the consequences because of their sin. They're reaping consequences because of their sin. You see this in verse nine and 10 where Malachi indicates that the land is under a curse. They were most likely facing some kind of famine. On top of the famine, the refusal to pay the tithe was causing the failing of both social and religious structures in Israel. It's really what the whole book of Malachi is about. It's addressing that, these failures of these religious and social structures in the land. The priests and and the Levites were not able to teach the people or perform the sacrifices. And the social network to protect the widow, the orphan, and the poor had broken down. So in response to Israel's wrongful withholding of the tithe, the Lord withheld covenant blessings and dispersed covenant curses on them. That's the idea of the land is cursed. Now, I want to make something clear to you. I don't want you coming away thinking here that I'm saying that if you don't tithe, God is cursing, going to curse you. That is not the New Testament covenant at all. The Old Testament covenant, Mount Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant was a covenant that had both curses and blessings. The New Testament, we have the New Covenant. That New Covenant has curses and blessings. The difference between them and us is that Christ takes the curses for us. He's already borne the curses. He's borne our sin to be hung on the cross. He's to become a curse for us. Right? So, so not giving... I'm not saying to you by not giving, if you're struggling with giving or you're not giving, that somehow you're gonna incur the curse of God. That is not what we believe in the New Testament, because Christ has already borne that curse for us. So please hear that. Please do not leave thinking that somehow or another you're going to be cursed. You are a son or daughter of the king, and what the king has for you is only blessing and promises, because he has fulfilled all the, the promises of the Old Testament, For you and me. But the question I think we should ask is why was this happening to the people during Malachi's time? Why were they struggling? Why were they in this situation that they were in? And I really think it's because the people had stopped following the word of God. That's what Malachi is making clear here as a prophet. He's making clear that they had stopped following, following God's word and they were now finding their peace and their contentment and life, not from the giver of life, but rather in the things of this world. They had not fully grasped God's abundant generosity to them. Now, look at God's response to their neglect, to their robbery of him. Now, I love how God responds to their hostility and their disobedience. In spite of their sin, God replies with grace with promise and with hope for his people. He says, test me and know how gracious I will be towards you. I will bless you beyond measure when you return to me. Again, that's a call to repentance to receive blessing. And then in verses 10 to 12, God issues this promise. If they return to him in faith, it would result in their blessing. He would bless them according to his word. God wants them to know and believe that he is generous and he will bless them as they respond in faith. He doesn't want them coming to the tithe as some perfunctory ritual, but rather with hearts ready and glad to give because they understand he is their God and they are his people. Church, we may even have reason, we even have more reasons than the Old Testament people of God in Malachi's day to be generous with what God has entrusted to us. We have the riches of Jesus Christ at our disposal at our disposal through faith and through his spirit We don't need to hold back when God calls us to give because we can trust in the better promises of Jesus Christ, even as Tony says, to supply our every need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. You know, I want to close today by thinking through some ways this text can apply to us. Now, I'm not going to end here in a minute, so I have at least three more points I want to close with. So just putting that out there. I don't want to get anybody's hopes up. But three things I want to look at here today. Inevitably, when we talk about tithing, the question comes up, as to whether we are commanded to tithe in the New Testament. Now, and by that tithe, I mean, are we commanded to give 10% to the church? But does the New Testament command us to do that? Now, there are a couple of different views out there in the Christian church as a whole and within Reformed and Presbyterian circles as well. So without getting into the weeds, meaning I'm not really gonna answer that question directly, I simply say this, that in the New Covenant, we are commanded to do more than tithe. We are called to radical generosity. Because, and we're called to that radical generosity because we've experienced amazing generosity, amazing kindness in the Lord Jesus. We have been blessed with life in Christ and the presence of God through his spirit in us. God out out of his riches has given his only begotten son to you and me. What a blessing that is. That the people in Malachi's day did not experience that. They did not have the spirit. They only had parts of the word of God. They didn't have what we have today. And we are blessed in so much greater ways that it should, it should move our hearts to give appropriately, to give sacrificially because of what Jesus has done for you and me. Look, God has lavished grace upon grace upon grace on us. Every one of us should have grateful hearts that long to give back to God's work because of the work God has done in our own hearts. In our own lives. You know God does not limit us to a law of a mere 10% rather as he has abundantly given to us now we have that opportunity to give back to give back what he's already blessed us with. Here's the thing the purpose of the tithe is to support God's work but the primary purpose for the tithe is in the, both for the tithe and in New Testament giving is to put God first in our lives. I really appreciated what Tony said that it was a principle that she learned early on to put God first and one of the ways we do that is by putting our money out there and trusting God to do that with us. And I think if we can learn to put, to trust God with our money, with our finances, then we can trust God with a lot of other issues as well. It opens a door for us to be able to see him work in a way that for many of us we hold on to those finances tightly, we're worried, we're fearful, um, and so we hold them up, we hold on to them instead of trusting in God. But the tithe was given uh, in a sense to to, um, to put God first in our lives. You know, the tithe was not a legalistic regulation. God had a special purpose for asking for it, and we see this clearly in Deuteronomy 14 where where Moses writes, each year you are to set aside a tenth of all the produce grown in the fields so that you will always learn to fear the Lord your God, to be in awe of God, to be amazed by God, by what he's done for them. That's the purpose of our giving. It's for us to be able to look to God in the way that he provides for us and trust him that he's going to provide not just today, but tomorrow and next year and the following year. And that if we can believe his word and his promises, then that should free us, free us to step out in faith to give, and to give radically, and to give with generous hearts. Look, money is an idol that most of us, if not all of us, struggle with. But if we can learn again to put God first in our giving, it will help us put God first in other areas of our lives. You know, I like to think of the tithe as the beginning of giving, with the goal of increasing giving as God blesses. So I think sometimes we start with the mentality, I give 10% and that's enough. But that's that's also not the best idea to have with your heart. That's a great starting place, right? But if you're giving 10%, I'm I'm just gonna use numbers not to offend anybody here, but if you're giving 10% but you're making 300,000, well 10% for you is probably on the low side if you're giving 10% making $50,000, you are probably giving too much in New York City to live. Secondly, I want us to look at what things are preventing us from being generous. You know, hopefully today's passage has inspired us to question our lack of generosity. And I'm assuming, I know I struggle with this, I struggle to be generous, I struggle to be generous with my finances, to be generous with my money. I'm assuming that we all struggle with that. Um, If you don't, I would love to hear from you because I would love to meet someone who does not. I've yet to, to meet someone who's just so generous all the time that it's never an issue that they feel like they need to hang on to what they have. What could be the reasons then behind our hesitancy to share the resources that God's entrusted to us? For some of us, I think fear may be the driving factor of why we're not generous. We're afraid that God will not provide for us. That's the bottom line. When we hold on to what God has given us and we we, we don't give it back, it's because we're afraid that somehow He's not going to provide for my needs. He's not going to take care of me. Others may simply be afraid to let go of your resources because you believe that somehow or another by letting them go, you're going to miss out on the things that life has for you. That is, that you've fallen into this trap of believing that that your possessions are somehow this falsely promised to give you the better life, to provide a better life for you. Yes, possessions can make things easy for us, but possessions aren't going to change our hearts. Possessions aren't gonna show us who God is, of anything they can distract us from who God is and what he's calling us to do as a church and as families and as individuals. Thirdly, I'll ask this, are you a thankful person? You know, the New Testament calls radical generosity is rooted really in the recognition of how God has been generous to us. And I I think I've said some of this, but do we pause long enough to recognize the blessing God has given to us in the Father? That is, do you take time out throughout the week, throughout the month, to to occasionally reflect upon how God has been good to you? Because sometimes that can help us then be thankful. If if we're living in life that we're so busy that we fail to even reflect on the blessings of God, then that sometimes can cause us to hold those things that God has entrusted to, to us to hold them too closely to our hearts. Do we respond to God with a tender heart with the things he's given us? That is, that we don't hold on to them so tightly that we can release them and be thankful that we can bless others with them. You know, if we're going to be a generous people, if we're going to be a generous church that God calls us to be, then we need to cultivate a heartfelt thanksgiving that God has given each of us. That if we're going to be a thankful church, then we need to cultivate those blessings by thanking on them, by remembering them, by contemplating them. And lastly, let me say this. Maybe you haven't begun to tithe yet, or you haven't begun to give to the church. And you look at your finances and you simply say, there is no way I can give 10% right now to the work of God. I completely understand that. But let me encourage you not to stop there. Take a baby step and begin to give something. Trusting God to meet your every need. And, God, and as God blesses, then give more. But don't be afraid to begin. Don't be afraid to begin to give. Don't be afraid to test God in your giving. He has blessed us and he promises to continue to bless us as his people. So we can trust him to provide all that we need. Would you pray with me? Triune God, we thank you for the scriptures, we thank you for the reminder that all that we have and enjoy belongs to you. We pray, Lord, that you would learn that we would learn to be faithful stewards of what you've entrusted to us. You are a loving and generous Father, and we long to be a people in a church known for our generosity. We pray that as we taste and see the gospel of Jesus Christ in our own lives, that we would grow to be a generous people. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.